This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Rabbi Aaron Cutler, CEO of the Lakewood Yeshiva. How are you, Rabbi Cutler? I am wonderful, Ari. Good to say hello to you this evening and to your audience. Thank you so, so much. And thrilled you could join us, making time in your very, very busy schedule. And uh, really excited to speak with you this evening. Uh, so as we do with all of our guests, really, uh, we try to start at the beginning, which I guess is a logical place to start, um, and get a sense of people's background and people's upbringing. I know that you find yourself currently in a very, very interesting place in the Jewish world at, at a nexus of uh, Jewish study and philanthropy and entrepreneurship. Uh, and I want to get to that, but I want to understand first some of the context. So where did you grow up and, and what was your upbringing like? Uh, sure. So first of all, let me share with you and your audience that I really consider myself to be somewhat of an anomaly, and I'm not sure that I fit in here to what I'm doing. And that might be true for many others too, but certainly it's true for myself on a very personal level. So I did grow up in Lakewood, New Jersey, and this was the last thing that I thought I would end up doing in my life. <laughs> so if one has a bucket list, this wasn't even on my bucket list. So you were, you were born in Lakewood, and, and those who are familiar with your uh, name will know that it's the namesake of a very, very famous rabbi who founded not the town of Lakewood, but who, who instituted a Jewish presence there. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of uh, that place and, and your family's role there? Uh, sure. So my grandfather never actually lived in Lakewood. I would consider him to be the founder of a notion in the Jewish people. And that notion was that Jews are meant to be knowledgeable, but they're also meant to be intelligent. And knowledgeable Jews are those who know something or a lot about their tradition, their history, their religion. Intelligent Jews are those who not only know a lot about that, but they also study them and they recreate them and they carry them forward to another generation. And my grandfather's contribution, and this is why he never ended up moving to Lakewood, the great city of the Lakewood Yeshiva, where, as you mentioned, I'm the president of, his vision was Torah for the Jewish people. Torah study, Torah knowledge, Torah education. He wanted every Jew to be a literate Jew. And if a Jew wasn't connected to Torah, they were not connected to Torah study, in his view, that was a lack of literacy. And he was going to battle that. He was going to bring Torah to every single Jew. And in seeking to do that, he was running against the culture of his time. In the 1940s, there was a huge movement of Jews for assimilation and Jews who did not want to assimilate into the greater American culture were seen as maybe unpatriotic or that there was something wrong with them. What didn't those Jews get? Maybe let's call them those stubborn Jews, get about the beauty of America. America is a great society, and it was almost seen as the ultimate mitzvah, more than the Passover Seder, more than tzedakah. The ultimate mitzvah was to become merged with and part of a greater American whole. And he was a revolutionary. He was a countercultural to the mores of his day. And he said, no, no, no. We have a 3,300-year-old 3, history 
of Torah. And we have to keep that alive. And if we keep it alive, we have to keep it fresh with a lot of knowledge and a lot of scholarship. So he created Yeshiva here in Lakewood, and he was able to recruit a sum total of 13 students. <laughs> so 13 uh, young men who were crazy enough to join him in this endeavor. And they were lambasted and they were vilified and people were very upset at them. And whatever happened to the Jewish doctor, lawyer, account, and all those other wonderful things. And what do you guys think you're doing? This is not uh, Eastern Europe 1920, 1930, and you're not in Russian Poland anymore. Leave the old country for the old country. So you open the yeshiva in Lakewood, but he didn't move here. He stayed in Manhattan, and he built Jewish education in the United States. He helped build the Torah Masorah uh, elementary school movement. He built Jewish education in Israel through the Chinuch HaTzmai uh, school system. In France, through Otsar HaTorah for Sephardic Jews. In uh, Latin America, South America, and many other places. And somehow this is where I landed up. <laughs> Why did he choose Lakewood? I mean, did he want to be near the Six Flags? Like, what, what was the <laughs> attractive about this nondescript town in the middle of New Jersey? Uh, it was out of New York City, and it did not have a lot of distractions. And in the good old days, it took about three hours to get from Manhattan to Lakewood, which we're returning shortly to that state as traffic <laughs> increases. But it was far from New York City. It was quiet and it was a small Jewish community, it was a resort town, and it had the type of atmosphere that was conducive to contemplative study. So now by the time you were being raised, I imagine that 13 people, that core, that sort of iconoclastic, radically idealistic group of people had grown to some extent, I would imagine. What was sort of the, the milieu in which you found yourself being raised? Oh, I had a huge class. I had two classmates. Uh, my age in Lakewood. One moved to California, so I then had one classmate, but I considered myself exceptionally fortunate. I went to an out-of-town yeshiva. I was already 11 years old when I had to go out of town because there was no Jewish education for me in Lakewood at the time, but I was lucky because my brothers went out of town at age seven. Two of them boarded in Boston at a yeshiva in Boston at age seven, uh, my other brothers went at age eight or nine to New York City and to other places like that. And I made it all the way till 11. I still had classmates. But I didn't know how many Jews there were in the world because I just knew I had a couple of classmates. And I wasn't really in a formal school because there weren't enough children for a school. So it was kind of run by one of the parents of the other kids. And I'll never forget, I went to New York City for a Shabbos and there was a Shabbos afternoon group, and there must have been 30 or 40 kids in this Pirachit group. And I walked in, and I said, oh, my gosh, this must be the international convention <laughs> of Jews from all over the world. And they said, no, these are the kids who live on 13th Avenue and 52nd Street. <laughs> wow. So I guess uh, it sounds like it had not really grown that much by the time you were growing up. And, and of course, that's that for those familiar, that's a far cry from today, which, which we'll get to. Um, you said that this position ultimately of running this kind of family institution of Torah study was not on your bucket list. Um, so where did you go as a young person? It sounds like you left town at age 11. And where did you go from there? Yeah, I kind of got kicked out of yeshiva after yeshiva. So usually I was one step ahead of the law, not always. <laughs> and I went through a number of different yeshivas. The one that, of course, couldn't throw me out was 
Lakewood Yeshiva, my father, of course, wasn't going to throw me out. But I, I wasn't the very studious type. I was very curious, and they had not yet invented ADHD, so they didn't diagnose me or give me a Concerta or Ritalin or anything like that. So they just let me be. I was not the very studious type. Through the years, I survived in the system, but certainly didn't think that the idea of devoting one's day or hours of the day to study would be something I would ever physically be able to do. And that's a little bit why I view myself as an anomaly. And as you know, Ari, I landed up at Asha Torah in Yerushalayim and began teaching there at probably too young of an age of about 23. I had a very dear mentor, Rabbi Tom Meyer, who recruited me. He said, you're going to be a great, a great Asha Torah rabbi. From the D.C. area, I might add, which is where... area, yeah. I said, Tom, I, I don't know anything. He said, you know a lot more than you think. You know, I said, Tom, I really don't know anything, and I've never taught, and uh, I'm going to be a disaster. He says, no, you're going to come teach here and just trust me. And I trusted him and I began teaching. And I'll never forget this. My first day at Aish, uh, he gave me a slot, 9 a.m., right opposite his slot. Now, remember, I had no experience teaching. He gave the most dynamic class in the world. And he must have had 30 or 40 guys in the class. And the first day he sent over one student. (laughs) Ultimately, he really mentored me in in a most beautiful way as did Rav Noach Weinberg and many others, Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz, Rabbi Ara Lapiansky. And uh, I spent a number of years at Asia. I see you're smiling over there thinking of D.C., but I spent a number of years at Asia, and those were, in a sense, a very formative experience for me. But what happened after that was I felt like I was the ultimate fraud because here I was teaching young Jewish college kids about Judaism and teaching maybe seven, eight hours a day, learning maybe six, seven hours a day. But I felt that the heart of Jewish knowledge, which is Talmud, was something I wasn't really comfortable with. And I said, you know, I have to give this up, and I must go to what we call kolol, because I had not had the extensive kolol experience. I had somewhat of a kolol experience, but not the extensive one. And I I may be exaggerating a little bit along the way, so no one get too offended. But I said, I I really want to go study in kolol. And I went to Rav Noach and I said to Rav Noach, I said, Rosh Hashiva, I'm planning on quitting my job as teaching in Aish and uh, I want to go learn. And to him, that was absolute heresy. How can you abandon the Jewish people? There are young Jewish students who are starving for knowledge. And you may think you don't have enough knowledge, but you have more than they do. And you have an absolute obligation to share what you have with them. How dare you even think about doing that? But I went back to Rabnoch year after year, and as my conscience kept gnawing at me, eventually I hit this five-year itch, and I said, Rabnoch, I'm really going to leave. I want to sit, and I want to go learn in Kolo. So I wanted someplace really quiet, maybe subtly. I was copying my grandfather, and I said, I'm going to move to Safad in northern Israel or some quiet place like that. Somehow, we landed up in the Catskill Mountains, which was the U.S. equivalent of Safad or some other really quiet place. And I went back to Kolol. I had been in Kolol a little bit before. I went back to Kolol and learned there for a number of years. The challenge in that was that secular Jews kept either driving by or walking in or I kept meeting them. So I landed up back inadvertently reaching out to Jews, learning about our traditions, our history, uh, and just sharing the beautiful Torah that we have with, with other Jews. And I ended up with two shuls, like any good rabbi, I had absolutely no money, so I was doing a little bit of business on the side, and was kind of your proverbial jack-of-all-trades, 
master of none, but no one was going to fire me, so it was all okay. And that's the prelude to before I arrived here in Lakewood. You know, I guess initially when you had been going through those formative years, it sounds like years of sort of searching for your, for your place, coming from this dynastic, brilliant Torah family, and maybe not fitting that mold entirely um, and finding your own rhythm. What did you thought you were going to do with your life? I mean, did you, did you have sort of a dream at that point? Well, I wasn't really searching. I mean, don't get me wrong. This, I, <laughs> I wasn't some hippie in the 60s in Ashbury Haight uh, looking for meaning or looking, looking from some kumbaya experience. I was pretty happy. I loved teaching, and I saw myself. I easily could have stayed in Asia, and I'd be teaching there to this day. I really loved that, and I loved learning. And even in the years where I was not so behaviorally inclined in yeshivas, I did love learning. It wasn't easy for me, but I really loved learning. And I loved working with people. I loved sharing Judaism with others. And it didn't really make a difference to me if they were the most advanced scholars or if they were brand new to Judaism. I just, Torah is the heart and soul of Jewish life. And I love that. So I, I wouldn't say that I was searching. I was really happy with everything that I was doing. But as with any abundance of good, you kind of have to make this choice. Where do you want to zero in and share that good the most? And I had a lot of opportunities and a lot of things going on and loved them all and had nothing compelling me to change what I was doing, at least at that point in time. <laughs> so it sounds like, obviously, you're studying and married and continuing to deepen your own knowledge base while also doing quite a few other things. Um, at some point, I guess, you, know, you got the call to come home and something changed and you found yourself in a new position. How did that uh, transpire? So there we were living in the Catskill Mountains in a 900-square-foot apartment with five children. My youngest was sleeping in a little basket because we didn't have any bed for them. But things were really great. Uh, did not feel like I'm missing anything in life. Loved the life there. And we were very, very happy. And conceivably, like at Aish, I could have stayed there forever. And maybe would have ended up with six or seven shuls at some point. I would have reached capacity or who knows what. And was doing a little bit of business on the side just to pay the bills, which was working out okay. So didn't really have all that, that much pressure. My wife has an uncle, uh, Mr. Steve Rosedale out of Cincinnati. Okay. He wanted to build a community call in Cincinnati. So he invited us to come, him and Aunt Beatrice. He said, coming out for a Shabbos. We come out for Shabbos to Cincinnati. And uh, Uncle Steve gives me what we call the talking to. And the talking to was straight up. Of, he says, look, you, everything is great, but it's time you take real responsibility in your life. And, you know, the speech that only an uncle can really give, I'm like, Steve, I, I, I'm doing all these things. I have uh, learning with secular Jews, learning with religious Jews, studying Talmud, supporting my family on my own. I'm doing all these great things. I got five kids. And he said, no, 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 you need to take real responsibility. And initially, I wasn't offended, but I was certainly bothered by the speech. And Uncle Steve even gave me this speech. He was a captain in Vietnam. Uh, and he had been wounded in Vietnam, and he gave me this speech about the difference between command officers who command units in the field and staff advisors back at headquarters. And he shared with me how in Vietnam, the troops really did not like the staff officers <laughs> because the command officers out in the field, they have two shot-up jeeps, they're facing overwhelming enemy odds, and there's this 18-year-old newly minted lieutenant sitting in staff headquarters saying, go charge the enemy and kill them. So he said that there are these two types of people, and there are those who coast along in responsibility in life, 
they give advice to others, and then there were those who take direct inline command was the term he used for an enterprise or an endeavor. And when you take that inline command, that's a whole lot of responsibility. And there's no one else you could point to. It's it's you and your team and and it's really on you. And he gave me this schmooze because he wanted rightfully to recruit my wife and I to move to Cincinnati and help start the Cincinnati call out. But it actually was formative for me to say, okay, what do I really want to do? What will I really excel in? And that was sort of led the way to my coming back to Lakewood. In one of my businesses, we were raising capital for uh, an airline. We were foolish enough to be in the airline industry, uh, some friends and I, and we met some VC guys. And one of the VC guys was on the board of Lakewood. And when we left the office, he called up my brother, the Rosh Hashiva, and my family. And he says, you know, I think you should ask your brother Aaron to come to, come to Lakewood and get involved in the yeshiva. And my brother said, he's learning in South Fallsburg. And this VC guy says to my brother, I don't know about that, but he was just in my office asking for money for one <laughs> airline. So uh, we got rejected, by the way. We heard from everybody, from George Soros' folks and Warren Buffett's folks, the same line over and over, that the world would have been done a favor if they would have shot, at least investors would have been done a favor if they would have shot Orville and Wilbur White out of the sky. Airline industry was, at the time, notoriously tough to make money in. But he said, no, he's, he's involved in raising capital. So my family called me up and they said, so what are you really doing? I said, well, I'm kind of doing a lot of different things and life is great. You know, you're young, you're energetic and you've got a lot of things going on. And they shared with me some of the opportunities and some of the challenges that they were facing here in Lakewood as the vision and dream of my grandfather and father had materialized and grown and um, invited me to come join the team here. What were some of those challenges? What, what was the picture that you had walked back into at, uh, at that juncture? I think many organizations face this is when you, you come either into rapid growth, so you start a business maybe, or you start a school, and you encounter a period of rapid growth, and you're so busy managing that growth that you don't really have enough time and energy to devote to building the systems that will underpin the institution or the effort and will help you get to your next level. You could think of it as it's very easy to design an airplane or it's theoretically easy to design an airplane and new engines and new fuselage and do all those wonderful things if you're on the ground. But when you're flying an airplane, no one, even the folks over at Airbus and Boeing and our buddies at Bombardier, they are not going to design an airplane while it's flying because you're flying it. And it's the same for institutions. And it's true for families, I think, for communities when you're growing, to devote attention to the structural side is very difficult. So for me as an outsider, I didn't have any direct responsibility at the time for Lakewood, not for its growth and not for its challenges, but they were wise enough to say, we need to take a step back and a little bit of a breather, and we need to focus on our systems, we need to focus on our structure. So they called me, and I think they had made a mistake at the time because I really didn't know anything. I, um, I had a good last name, but you know, it was inherited, not earned. So that didn't really give me anything. But they invited me in, and I thought about it a lot. And it kind of spoke to me as the ultimate opportunity to do something that's really great, and that is to bring Torah to as many Jews as we can, bring authentic, real Torah study, and to help the Jewish people achieve the literacy that they were granted at Mount Sinai. What were some of the immediate responsibilities that you inherited in this 
new role? And did you feel qualified or did you just feel overwhelmed? Were you just kind of, you know, treading water? First responsibility was to dodge, duck, and weave all the bullets and everything aimed at me, which, you know, you learn. So that's not that hard to learn to duck. But I think the benefit that a new person has, and this is, I think, true for any new person in any organization, is you kind of have a little bit of an outsider's outlook, but yet I really was an insider. But I did have that outsider's outlook. So I was able to step back and say, okay, these are the problems. Let me kind of enumerate the problems. Let me evaluate the causes of the problems. And let's build the structures that we need to build. And I guess I had the luxury of that fresh perspective that I was able to do that. And a lot of good mentorship along the way from really good people who said to me, we'll help you out. The causes, the best that there is, There's no greater cause in the Jewish people than bringing Torah to Jews. And there's no greater cause than developing great Torah scholars. There's no greater cause than refreshing and renewing Torah for another generation. And let's do it together. And people rallied around that. And they were willing to give up their own time, their energy, not just the dollars, but a lot of effort and energy to mentor me along the way. And the mentors were primarily philanthropists or organization builders who were like, what kind of people were, were helping you formulate your, your plan? I went to some very experienced people who I had a lot of respect for. Rabbi Herman Neuberger of Near Israel, a rabbinical college in Baltimore. He's also a cousin and he was an absolute class gentleman and an incredible Torah scholar and a legendary community and institutional builders. So he was one of them. And then there were others in the philanthropic world. Some crossed over from the institutional to the philanthropic world. But people were just really ready and willing, just as Tom Meyer had mentored me uh, in the old age days, and Rav Noah Weinberg had done so, and later Rabava Gorelli. And I kind of picked up along the way. I was like the little stray cat that got adopted parents. <laughs> George Weinberger of SMS American Healthware and, uh, and, and many others along the way, A. Biederman of Lipperin Company, and that process continues to this day where you find a good person who knows a lot more than me, or at the very least, somewhat more than me, and try to learn as much as, as much as we can from them. So what's been the progress, the growth since you've come? I, I'm aware that the, the town and the institution has grown exponentially. Tell us a little bit about what that growth looks like, whether it's in numbers or in, in sort of the, the changes to the landscape and the, all the development, both physically and numerically, that's taken place over your tenure there. I, allow me first to comment on culture, because uh, serving in an institution and being involved in many communities, I've maybe come to the realization that while numbers speak a lot, the true health of any enterprise comes down to the culture of the group of the enterprise. So think of a family can have 10, 15, or three kids. The size of the family is not gonna matter. It's that culture that knits everybody together and how strong and healthy that culture is. How would you define that idea of culture? What are the ingredients that constitute a healthy culture? I think culture comes from a set of expectations and norms, norms of behavior, of values, ethos. What are we really committed to? And when I look at the Jewish people from when I came back here to Lakewood as the anomaly in 1995, 1996 uh, to today, I think the Jewish people as a whole have a much greater value for Torah scholarship and Torah study. And 
you can see it. I can give you numbers again. You can see how many people study Talmud every day, how many people join a turn Friday night into Shabbos or a one Shabbos event, how many people go to shiurim and lectures around the countries. You can measure it in how many families are sending their kids to Jewish day school. You can measure it in how many community calls there are. But I think the Jewish people as a whole have definitely embraced Torah knowledge, Torah study, to a far greater degree than was imaginable. Certainly it was imaginable in the 1940s in the United States, but far more than was expected back in 1995, 1996. And with that have come from Lakewood, thank God we're fortunate to have seen thousands of our alumni go out and become community educators, rabbis, dayanim, paiskim, kashras, teachers, community builders, community leaders, and all those other wonderful things. And I like to think of it as our role is to place Torah infrastructure in every Jewish community around the globe. So if you look at, for example, you look at Chabad and the wonderful things they do in bringing a Jewish presence, bringing Jewish life to communities, or you look at other established, very strong organizations, our specialty really are are great Torah scholars. And if we could bring Torah scholars as a principal to an institution, one principal can have an effect on 50 teachers and 50 teachers on thousands of children. One great rabbi in a community, I think of a placement that I was fortunate to be part of. We placed Rabbi Yaakov Blesher in the Lakewood Call of North Miami Beach. And he today is the acknowledged Torah leader, Torah presence for Halach and many other aspects of North Miami Beach. And the number of people down there in North Miami Beach who are studying Torah every day, who are studying with their families, Sephardim, Ashkenazim, and from Latin America, from South America, and your, your New York snowbirds and your Toronto snowbirds who ran down there. It's, re- it's really miraculous. And that, to me, is a real measure of success. So I can give you numbers and data, but I think the culture is what we really do need to talk about. We need to talk a lot more about that. Let's get more and more people studying Torah. Let's have every yeshiva, every school, every base Yaakov engaging their girls, their boys, their parents in Torah study. That Torah study, we're seeing a flourishing of it. There's so many more Jews out there. There are 13 million Jews. Our work has really just begun to place Torah infrastructure around the world. You know, with explosive growth, obviously comes challenges. And from where you sit, again, at this sort of nexus of Torah study and a a massive institution, but also what has spawned a community and communities, what are you now seeing as as the greatest challenges out there? What bothers you when you look at the Jewish world that you'd like to, if you could wave a magic wand, improve and transform? Because again, the growth has been exponential over the last decades. But again, with any growth, brings invariably uh, certain challenges. Look, there are so many, I wouldn't even know where to start. Maybe we have to find the commonalities to uh, all of them. But I'd love to see the adoption of best practices. Let's take, for example, Partners in Torah, which provides online or telephone study for those who want to learn Torah. So my very dear friend, Gary Torgo in Detroit, he must have six, 700 people in Detroit studying through Partners in Torah. What an opportunity for those who were blessed with a Torah education, with a Jewish education, to share that with those who are less fortunate. That's a best practice that could be adopted in so many other places. Some of the community calls we're involved in about 140 communities with community calls. Some of them have really great cutting edge programs. 
Let's see that being adopted by many, many more. Let's start to see the emphasis of shuls and communities shifting from a rabbi-led model to a laity-led model, where the laity are saying, we want to see more Torah study. We want to engage more. And that learning, that engagement in learning, it's not easy to do. Look, America especially, but we're involved all over the world, but especially in America, we lead exceptionally busy lives. Us crazy Americans, uh, we, we work like dogs for some reason. We think there's some holy grail to be found at the end of a 90-hour work week. You have to pry our iPhones out of our cold, clammy hands, right as they're lighting candles, as our wives are lighting candles right before Shabbos. So we, we, we live such pressured lives. And for us to find space in our lives for genuine tefillah, for genuine Torah, would be the greatest gift that we can bring to anybody anywhere. And I think that that, you have to go to root cures and root problems that are common to all. And the problem that's common to all is we're distracted. And we're distracted at the Shabbos table. We're distracted weekday at the table. We're distracted in business meetings. I have some meetings where I have a basket where I literally confiscate phones. We do return them after the meeting, but people are distracted. You see people walking down Fifth Avenue, perfectly reasonable, logical people are banging their heads into light poles because they're busy watching their phones. Imagine sitting down to an hour or two hours each day of uninterrupted Torah study. Imagine that uninterrupted time with our children, to uninterrupted davening, uninterrupted spirituality, to an uninterrupted relationship with Hashem. I think that is the challenge of the generation is all these great distractions. Like I have to tell you, Ari, I was on a plane. I'm on a plane too often, but I was on a plane last week and I sit down, I landed up in the middle seat. I was supposed to, I hate the middle seat. So uh, I'm sure everybody does. I try to avoid it, but I, I flew standby in an earlier flight. I was getting out of Dodge somewhere and I'm in the middle seat and I come onto the plane and I'm in boarding group 16. That was actually only boarding group six. And of course there are folks sitting on both sides of me. So, I sit down, and the people next to me, neither one of them looked up from their phone, even to acknowledge there's a human being sitting down next to them. And I thought to myself how my mother of blessed memory would have smacked me at age 50 if she would have seen me act that way. Now, she's not asking me to be all intrusive. She never would have said to me, you need to talk to your seatmate if that person wants their privacy. But at least acknowledge them, at least say hello. What really happened is we're so used to being distracted, we don't even know that we are distracted anymore. So you asked me what the biggest challenge is. If we solve that one, if we could stay focused, kavana, kavana in davening, kavana in learning, and kavana in our human relationships, we'll have a far better Judaism that we entrust to our children. As, again, the community has grown, and in particular, your corner of the community has grown, I know that you have often found yourself in positions in which you are working to influence the broader world and be involved in the broader community. Is that something that you believe to be of importance sort of conceptually? Uh, is it something that you do just for pragmatic reasons, being engaged in, in the political world and just sort of the broader society? How do you sort of see not only your personal role, but the community's role in, in the larger society? So I have a unique advantage is that personally I identify myself as what we would call a Slabotka Jew. So those of you who later listen to this podcast, you could just Google Slabotka Yeshiva, S-L-A-B-D-O-K-A. 
And in the Slabotka model, the Jew who is fortunate to be blessed with Torah represents the dignity of man in the world or the dignity of the human being. It applies equally to males and females alike. And that sense that you represent Torah is something that can never leave your side. It has to govern every interaction, every expression that you have, whether it's in private or in public. So I'm strongly influenced by that because that is my own personal family background. And I'm not the most formal person. So I'm wearing a tie, Arya, but that's only in your honor. <laughs> I don't really particularly like ties uh, all that much. Uh, so it's really not about the dress as much as it's about how one carries themselves in the world. So we're Jews and we have this incredible tradition. We represent Hashem in the world. We represent Hashem's Torah in the world. We represent all the great Torah sages throughout history. So when we go out into the world, that's who we are representing. And that's who the person sees. And I would aspire when a mother sees a Torah scholar or someone who's connected to Torah, you want that mother to say, I want my child to be like that. That represents class. That represents dignity. That's how a person should carry themselves. That's how they should dress. That is how they should speak because it's the dignified way. It represents the full majesty of the human being, the majesty that the, our divine creator has invested in us. Can you share any vignettes of experiences you've had with maybe prominent personalities in the broader culture where you felt that this dignity has been communicated to them and has, has really impacted or inspired them? I see it all the time. I've met a few presidents here and there and some other great figures. Uh, I've got one great story. I have a very dear friend who's uh, slightly older than me, Irishman. He's considerably older than me. and He's also one of my mentors. And his name is Joe Buckaloo. He was the chairman of the Garden State Parkway Authority, a chairman of the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority, and some other great positions. And uh, he's a very, very dear friend, Joe. And Joe, if you ever listen to this, I said it publicly too. <laughs> We'll well, get him the link. <laughs> so uh, there, there was a new governor elected in New Jersey, and that governor was Jim McGreevy, who had a very short tenure. But Jim McGreevy was and is a very dear friend of mine to this day. And Jim McGreevy invited me to come see him after the election. And he said to me, don't come to me in the governor's uh, office in Trenton. It's too stressed there. Don't come to me in Drumthwack at the governor's mansion. He says, I'm going to be over at the Jet Stadium in uh, the Meadowlands. He says, I'm really not interested in football. But I'm the governor, I have to show up. So come, I'll hang out there, we'll have a good time. So I walk into the uh, what is officially the governor's box, and there's about 80,000 crazy people cheering out there. I have no idea, I don't know anything about football, and I'm just utterly not interested in football. My kids don't understand why, but that's just a reality. And I'm there, I walk into the governor's box, and my friend Joe Bucklow is there, who knows me since I'm a baby. And the new governor has no idea that Joe Bucklow knows me. So the governor says to Joe Buckley, Joe, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, the rabbi, Rabbi Kotler. And Joe says to Governor McGreevy, he says, Governor, you're going to introduce me to the rabbi? He said, I knew his father and I knew his grandfather. He says, his grandfather was holy. He says, I saw his eyes. I met him in 1960. He said, and that holiness that I witnessed in that man has stayed with me to this day. And I thought to myself, here was a man who saw a great Torah sage more than 50 years ago. And Joe Buckaloo, trust me, he's no slouch. Very successful builder of TD Commerce Bank, TD Insurance, 
a very great man. And 50 years ago, he met a great Torah scholar. And that vision, that holiness just stayed with him. We obviously, we are nowhere near as great, but if we could convey a little bit of that majesty, it's not an earthly majesty. It's not a majesty of power. It's not, it's not a Ferrari or Maserati or a De Lorraine or anything else like that. It's not, it's not a Gucci pocketbook or a Vendi or a Fendi or a La Boutain, whatever they call them, <laughs> those, the red bottoms. It's a different type of majesty, but that's our heritage. And we carry that, whether we're aware of it or not, every moment of ours in the world. And Joe Buckaloo saw it. And I think at that moment, Jim McGreevy saw it too. He saw a reflection of it. That's something that we all carry within us. Just in closing, what do you think is sort of the evolution of the community that you foresee? Where is it going in your eyes? What remains to be built? You know, I look at the community of today and Lakewood in particular of today. And if Israel is a startup nation, you know, Lakewood is, is a, uh, has its fair share of startups. And there's an entrepreneurial spirit that I think permeates the culture, which I think is very interesting and very different in a sense than that sort of pure or pristine ideal of study, but perhaps emerges from a very similar thematic place. Um, that idea of, of applying oneself and building and growing with something. What's your current take on where the community is and where it's going? You remind me of the time that I went with Governor Christie on a trip to Israel, and we went to see uh, President Shimon Perez of Israel. And President Perez was describing to the governor, he was saying, Governor, he was talking about all the Israeli startups, the legendary, legendary work that Israel has done in, uh, in technology and biotechnology and drones and all types of medical advances. And when he finished, I said to him, I said uh, in Hebrew, if the president can tell the governor, don't tell him what the Jewish people in Israel are doing, tell him where it comes from. So Perez turns to Christie and he says, governor, we've been studying Talmud for 2,000 years. So Christie says, I know I have the largest yeshiva in the world uh, in my state. So there is something to be said for the physical worldly advantages of yeshiva education. However, this is a very important however. When I hear, for example, of Israeli startups, I think to myself, all these startups that these great Israeli companies are doing, all their technological advances, whether it's uh, ways or cameras that can be swallowed and provide an inside vision, all these incredible advances, if we add them up on one side of the scale, they do not come near in the scale, honoring your father and mother. They don't come near the smallest mitzvah. And my intent of that is very simple. The contribution that the Jewish people have made to the world are our moral and spiritual values. And obviously with that come many worldly benefits as the Torah describes in the Shema, but the purpose is not the worldly benefits. We don't love Hashem and have awe of Hashem and fear God because we want the rains to come, although the Torah does say that. We do it because it's right. We do it because that reflects the essential soaring greatness of humanity. Our contribution as Jews to the world, the contribution that we have because of Torah, are the moral and spiritual contributions to humanity. I quote a Mishnah, who is the wealthy man? He was happy with his lot. Kol hakoes, kila ovid If one gets angry, it's as if that person is worshiping idols. You're giving up control of yourself to an alien force. These are not new ideas to us. This is the essence of Judaism. It's our moral contribution, our spiritual contribution. 
which expresses itself in community, in faith, and family. And those far outweigh any other ancillary benefits that may come. Maybe, Ari, if you'll let me close. Please. The one thing that really surprises people about Orthodox Jewish communities in general, and to a great degree about Lakewood, is that sense of community. So in a fractured world that has seen the value of community decline so precipitously in such a strong fashion over the last 10, 15, 20 years, where families are alienated, they don't see their parents, children don't live with the parents and parents don't live with the, with the children and the grandparents, you don't have the generations together, which is a loss of a generational bond and generational contact. And that sense of community where you know your neighbor, you not only know your neighbor, you love your neighbor and you support your neighbor is something that has been greatly and in a sad way weakened in modern day America. And what people really embrace, and we have, are you come out here, you see the college, of the campus Jewish outreach we have to young college kids. What they walk out saying is they can't believe the sense of community how committed people are to each other, how people go out of their way to support and help each other, where you still see hitchhiking here. People trust each other. I don't want to say it too loudly. People <laughs> in their cars. They don't lock their front doors. They bring food packages. They care about each other. There's a massive amount of chesed, of kindness, of helping the sick, helping people in distress that is, I believe, unmatched in society at large. And those are reflections of thousands of years of the inculcation of moral and spiritual values to, as the Rambam says, we're meant to be like Hashem, just as Hashem is a Rachum, Hashem is merciful, Hashem is graceful, so to we are meant to live that way. Thank you very much, Rabbi Aaron Cutler. A wonderful way to end and a uh, very promising note for the future and for the continued flourishing of not only this community, but hopefully Jewish communities everywhere, which in turn may influence the world at large. Rabbi Aaron Cutler, thank you very, very much for joining us. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.